sure you're buying this JPEG and sure anybody can see it, but also that's not really about owning the image or it's you know not, not about owning it as a piece of artwork. The idea of ownership is more about it being an investment and something that you know is provably yours. That's you know that's how NFTs work, but it's more about it being kind of a share of a larger product. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, and (laughs) all right, here we go. In late August, a fellow named Tom Osman claimed to have sold the NFT for a piece of artwork called Ether Rock Number 42. Ether Rock Number 42 is one artwork in a series of 100. And that series was created four years ago. So as far as NFT art goes, it's pretty old. The artwork itself is a computer image. It's it's purely digital. And it is a cartoon rendering of a rock. It is really quite that basic. It's got about five colors total, each one a varying shade of reddish brown. There is no way for me to undersell this image. (laughs) If you have children, imagine them drawing a rock. If you don't have children, imagine someone else's child drawing a rock. And if you're still having trouble here, uh, imagine Microsoft clip art circa 1999. This cartoon rock sold for $1.3 million. But there's more to this story because the cartoon rock itself did not sell for $1.3 million. Instead, what sold was the proof of ownership of the cartoon rock. And that proof of ownership can be tracked on something that is called a blockchain, which, yes, is the same technology that cryptocurrency relies on to function. Already, this is getting a little bit more jumbled than we would expect. Buying a painting, sure, yes. Buying a digital painting, okay. Buying a bad digital painting, uh, art is subjective. Buying a token? Buying a, a digital thing that proves your ownership of the subjectively bad painting? Uh, uh, and what's this? The digital painting was offered for free on a website called goodfreephotos.com? What? Blockchain? Blockchain? Back to the rock. Perhaps naively, I tried to approach this cartoon rock NFT sale with my usual tools of understanding. I thought, ah, I must be missing something because $1.3 million can buy me a home in San Francisco, which is the most expensive city in America for real estate right now. And well, I can live in a home, but I can't figure out what I would do with ownership of a cartoon rock. So then I thought, ah, this rock must be important. It must have some cultural or artistic significance. But the truth is that the cartoon rock came from a website that is legitimately called goodfreephotos.com. I was not making a joke back there. Goodfreephotos.com lives up to its promise. It offers good photos for free. No copyright issues, no claims of ownership to get you in trouble if you take and use a photo from that site. It appears to be run by an American fishing hobbyist who also uses the website to post photos and video blogs about his latest catches in the Midwest, which I agree is exceedingly charming. And it is, yes, the website that freely hosted 
a cartoon drawing of a rock that eventually netted someone else $1.3 million. Let's be clear here. The owner of goodfreephotos.com did not make $1.3 million from this cartoon rock. In fact, from what I can tell, he had nothing to do with the creation of the original NFT project four years ago, those 100 Ether rocks. So what happened? From what we know, Tom Osman, again, the fellow who says he sold the Etherrock number 42 NFT for $1.3 million, he said he bought the NFT just weeks prior for $4,800. And in speaking with the news outlet Vice, Osman explained his purchase. Quote, I had a hunch it would be something that collectors would want, which I'm going to interrupt here, but no, you didn't. But okay, Osman did explain where that hunch came from, saying that, it's the perfect combo of historic, one of the first NFT projects, scarce, only 100, some lost, a meme, literally clip art, and polarizing. Now, I am willing to bet that other people who have made the same gamble on purchasing any of the other Ether rocks have not been rewarded as handsomely, and thus the whole hunch thing falls apart. But I'm getting into the weeds. And that's no good. Today's episode is supposed to answer questions about NFTs. And all I've done is raise more questions. Questions about ownership and about free assets becoming million-dollar assets and about the very economic system that could allow such a roller coaster of speculation. I cannot answer all your NFT questions myself. So that's why, for today's episode, we've brought in a few experts to walk us through the entire landscape. Because, as you will learn, NFTs aren't just something that nets random people millions of dollars, which we could also call a digital reenactment of late-stage capitalism, hey but they are also something being sold in a field rife with scams. People have lost money. People have claimed to lost their NFTs, which, how? Remember, NFTs, they aren't the art. They're proof of ownership of the art. So does that mean the ownership gets overwritten? Is it erased? Do we consult the blockchain? How do we consult the blockchain? And before we get lost in any of the many rabbit holes, I'm going to start over a little more calmly and introduce our first guest. Starting us off today in understanding the NFT basics and the technology behind it, we're speaking with my colleague Mark Stockley, who, as a writer for the Mauerbytes Labs blog, tries to break down complex technical knowledge for everyday readers. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's just get right into it. Let's race into it here. As I said at the top here, I've jumbled a lot of words. I've rambled quite a bit about a rock. Let's, let's move away from the rock. What Put the is... rock down, David. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I don't know how to. What is an NFT? Wow, that's a question. So an <laughs> NFT is a non-fungible token. So well, there's the kind of technical side of this, and then there's the, all right, well, what is it? What is it? So I'm going to start with the what is it, and then we'll maybe we'll go into the technical stuff a bit later. So I want to start with a kind of fungible, non-fungible bit, just to explain some words, if that's okay. For me, the easiest way to understand this is to start with what fungible means. So something that's fungible is composed of interchangeable parts. So it's essentially anything that can be sold by quantity. So oil, for example, is a fungible asset because a barrel of oil is composed of smaller units of oil. Let's call them litres. 
And those units are interchangeable. And also you can fill up great big tanks with oil or fill up your car or, or barrels or jugs or whatever. And it doesn't matter which oil you've got or which oil I've got or if they get mixed up together. So if you go to the gas station to fill up your car, provided you go to the right pump, you don't care which 12 gallons of gas you get from the big underground tank. Okay, as far as you're yep. concerned, it's it's the same as the person that went before you and the person who's coming after you. And gold is another great example of a fungible asset. So you can smelt it, you can combine it together into those big old bars that they store at Fort Knox, or you can melt it down and divide it into ingots. So a non-fungible asset isn't that. So a non-fungible asset has properties that mean you can't break it down or build it up by quantity. So let's say you take some of that gold that I was talking about and you fashion it into a one-of-a-kind wedding ring. So it's no longer just raw material. You've turned it into something that you can't sensibly break down. Like so the half a wedding ring isn't going to do anything for you, right? So you have created a non-fungible asset from your fungible raw material. Your house, you've made the whole, do I buy a rock picture or a house? Yeah. My house is purely fictional too. That's why this is so, you know, which is, which is how I feel about the rock. So you can see why it's hard for me. <laughs> Okay, I own a house. Okay, <laughs> my, my house is a non-fungible asset. Okay, you, you you can't sensibly like I can't sensibly sell off sixteenth of my house, sixteenth mm. of my house. Mm. Um, and the Mona Lisa is a non-fungible asset, and so are concert tickets, for example. You can't sell half concert tickets. So that's okay. Does that does that explain where we are with non-fungible? It does. Okay, it does. And, and the token bit is just like it's a thing that represents another thing. So it's, it's not the thing itself. It's a representation of another thing. Do we have examples of other non-fungible tokens, right? Because you, like you said, it's, it's this example of another thing. It's a thing that stands in for another thing. And I think what is confusing, definitely for me, right, is that I hear things about non-fungible tokens, I hear things about, oh, what you're buying is proof of ownership. And that, to me, like my my closest analog, feels it feels like a receipt, right? And I think that feels incorrect to me to spend so much money on. But I just want to know, you know, what are examples of other non-fungible tokens? I think you're basically right about the receipts. And maybe a better example would be, in the UK, we have something called the land registry, and that says who owns what property. So I can stand in my house oh, yeah. and assert that I own my house, mm -hmm. but actually the legal proof that I own my house is a non-fungible token. It's a contract somewhere else that everybody has agreed upon. Is the, that, that's the place where we keep that information. So that filing system, that database, whatever it is, that isn't my house, but that is the thing that proves I own my house. So I think that's probably the easiest way to understand what's going on with NFTs. I think something that's a little perhaps confusing for folks, and, and it was definitely confusing for me, is that NFTs right now are just exploding in popularity. And so I think there's an assumption that they are maybe a year old at the most, something that folks have never heard about now suddenly snapping into fruition and becoming extremely expensive, extremely hype, extremely popular. It's this thought like, well, I guess, you know, I guess it came out last month. But that isn't true. And so I wanted to know, what are some of our earliest examples of NFTs as we are seeing them being used in practice today? And also, you know, essentially, what is the history of them here? 
You're right. They didn't start this month. NFTs actually started as something called coloured coins back in 2012. So this is quite early in the history of cryptocurrency in general. And this is the point where people start using the blockchain to record things other than currency transactions. People are starting to figure out that they can actually use it to represent other things like real things. So if we go back to our land registry, people are playing around with that idea that, hey, I can record some data on the blockchain that says, I own this, for example, because blockchains allow for that storing of arbitrary data. It doesn't have to be about cryptocurrencies. And from there, there's a sort of four-year evolution as people play around with that idea. Until about 2017, we get something called ERC721, which is a standard for defining NFTs on the Ethereum blockchain. And Ethereum is another cryptocurrency, but it allows for something called smart contracts. So it doesn't just record currency transactions. You can store actual code and logic in the blockchain. And so you can make slightly smarter NFTs, basically to make it easier to record okay, well, who now has ownership? And to maybe add in some other things as well, like royalty payments that stem from changes of ownership or changes of value and that kind of thing. And the most famous example of an NFT that uses ERC721 is CryptoKitties, which is a game that allows you to buy and sell and breed digital pets or tokens that represent digital pets. And that went viral. And I think that's the thing that really began to start the snowball which is what we can see now. Like, you know, everyone's field vision now is full of this NFT snowball. But I think it was kind of 2017 is when it really kicked off. Yeah. There was like so much in there that I feel <laughs> <laughs> was just acts of serendipity, right? That all of those things could have happened on their own and like nothing would have grown into what it is. Nothing would have blossomed into what it is. And there were quite a few things in there that I think have to just be explained because, because what you know, because like why, why are they working together? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think I just wanted to go quite basic here, right? To moving before Ethereum, which again is a cryptocurrency that folks pump money into uh, and they trade it online. Moving before the ERC thing, uh, and and moving before all that, what is? a blockchain? What is the blockchain that people probably hear about every single day? Okay. So the first important point is there is no the blockchain. So there isn't one blockchain to rule them all. There are, <laughs> there are, many, there are many copies of many different implementations of blockchains. Blockchain is an idea. And the idea of a blockchain is to create something that is essentially tamper-proof. So it is a way of recording information, and it starts life as a way of recording currency transactions for a currency called Bitcoin. And a blockchain works by recording a transaction and then essentially cryptographically tying that transaction to the entire history of all the other transactions. And the effect of doing that is that if you want to, let's say you want to commit a crime, you want to do some fraud and you want to change a transaction that happened a week ago. In order to do that on a blockchain, you have to recalculate every transaction that happened after the one that you want to change. So that in itself is a difficult thing to achieve. Now, beyond that, blockchains also have something called proof of work, which is this sort of deliberately difficult cryptographic puzzle, which makes recalculating those transactions 
hard work. It requires time and a lot of computing power to go through the process of changing the one that you want to fraudulently change and then recalculating everything that's happened since then. Now, that in itself would be a very difficult act to pull off. But the the sort of final piece of the jigsaw is that anybody can have a copy of that blockchain. In fact, the sort of power of blockchain comes from the fact that anybody can have a copy. And blockchains use a peer-to-peer network to, it's what they call arriving at consensus. So basically something has happened if there is consensus on the peer-to-peer network, which basically means do 51% of the people on the network agree that that thing happened? So if you want to create your fraudulent transaction from a week ago, not only do you have to change that transaction, not only do you have to do the hard work of recalculating every subsequent transaction, but you also have to do that on thousands and thousands of copies of the same database because there is no master copy and you have to do all of that simultaneously. So all of that makes blockchains very, very, very difficult to tamper with. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And people love blockchain technology, like (laughs) online. People just, they see it, and I I sort of see why, right, from this very easy to understand explanation of, of what it is. I understand the appeal. I understand the allure that this type of technology has enormous potential for recording transactions. And that doesn't just mean like monetary transactions. That just means recording things that have happened. And like, when you look at it like that, you can kind of see why some people might be led into thinking that like blockchain will solve everything. Like blockchain, like like voting, but on the blockchain. And like, there was a thing like a couple years ago where there was like a an app that said it would have like i'm gonna i'm gonna mess this up right but they said that they would have like sexual consent on the blockchain like you could you could like agree (laughs) yeah right and 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 i say like i'm gonna mess it up but i'm like what is there to mess up here um like in terms of the in terms of nuancing their idea but you know this is something that that people just they talk about a lot but i wanted it get away from the blockchain a little bit and and mention that again let's go back to ethereum and like you said we had this new way of recording things smart contracts of of storing things like like you said just like different kinds of data different kinds of logic on the blockchain i think two things have to be kind of addressed here one is what is a smart contract right how does that work but also why for ethereum like why was ethereum the thing that was the vehicle for creating erc i i just don't understand it so I, I, just to, to go back to what you were saying previously, I, I think you're sort of hinting at one of the things I think that may have helped catapult NFTs forward, which is this idea that what we've been going through over the last decade is a period of trying to figure out what blockchains are for. I think there's a lot of venture capital money sloshing about, looking for somewhere to go, convinced of the idea that blockchains are probably a good idea, like they seem like a really interesting technology, but nobody's actually figured out what they're for. There's There was a period about four or five years ago where everybody seemed to be talking about blockchains and it was going to solve every problem. I hadn't heard the sexual consent one, um, but it's a fantastic (laughs) example of, you know, you can imagine a bunch of people sat around a a meeting room in some startup going, you know, here's a problem and here's some technology which is going to solve that problem, provided like it never interacts with actual real life. <laughs> and there's a lot of that sort of thing happens on the blockchain. And, and I think, you know, part of what's happened with NFTs is there's a lot of money looking for a way to turn blockchains into something, which, which 
at the very least ferments a lot of experimentation. Now to Ethereum. So why Ethereum? I think the answer to that is probably just that Ethereum is big and relatively early in the history of mm-hmm. blockchain-based cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. So everyone's heard of Bitcoin. Ethereum, I think, is the next biggest. Yeah, I, I would call it number two, you know? Yeah. And the thing that it has that Bitcoin doesn't have is this idea of smart contracts. So Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain records a very small amount of information. It essentially records who's paying, who's getting paid, and how much money is moving. Now, there's a bit of other stuff as well, but that's basically it. And with Ethereum, somebody had the idea of, okay, well, we're recording digital data in this immutable way that we can with blockchains. Well, we can record digital code. You know, we can have code on the blockchain. And if we do that, we can do more interesting things because we can have things on the blockchain that, let's say, hold money in escrow. So, you know, you pay some money into a smart contract and then it waits for certain conditions to be met before it will pay out that money to whoever it's going to. Let's say you're buying my house. You know, there's that tricky moment where you're buying a house where it's like, has all the money gone through and who's got the keys and you know, you might want to hold that in escrow. So you could use a smart contract to manage that process and take out the middleman, if you like. Just to finish off about the, the smart contracts, one of the things that's very important for your listeners to get hold of is the idea that blockchains are completely transparent. So anything that happens on a blockchain, because anyone can have a copy, anyone can monitor what's going on. And there are websites that will do that for you, or you could have your own copy of the Ethereum blockchain, and you could actually watch that and see what's going on and interrogate it and so on. And so if you put some code, if you put some computer logic onto a blockchain, the blockchain, firstly, it tells you no one has tampered with this because as I explained earlier, it's incredibly difficult to tamper with things on blockchains and anybody can see what that does. So if you're going to do contracts with someone else, you either want a trusted third party who you trust to make sure everything happens legally, or you want to be able to verify it yourself. And that's what blockchains give us. And that's why smart contracts are useful, because you can go and look at and see how they work, and you can be absolutely sure that they haven't been tampered with. So trying to wrap it all together into how it works, essentially, what I'm gathering here is that if I purchased an NFT, what I would be doing is I would be paying for Already, I've I've lost it, right? But I just, <laughs> but I think the I think I'm trying to break it down for folks, right? I think it is. I'm saying that I am paying X amount. Let's say I'm paying a million dollars, which I don't have. But where you live in fantasy, so it's fine. Let's say I'm paying a million dollars for an artwork, and what is happening is that through that transaction, I am signing a contract, and it is a contract that I know is transparent and extremely difficult, basically nigh impossible, to tamper with. And I find comfort in that. I find comfort in the fact that, well, you know, I say I own this and no one can say no. No one can say, oh, actually, it's it's me. It's this guy because we can consult this transparent, readily, readily accessible contract or series of contracts. And I can point to it and just say, hey, look, no, no, the proof is there. I own it. I spent a million dollars. 
and by spending a million dollars, I got to sign my name, which didn't actually happen, you know, but you know, I got to sign my name and there it is. There's my signature. Is that it? Is that what's happening? (laughs) Yes. Imagine this. Have you ever accidentally used a permanent marker pen on a whiteboard instead of the whiteboard pens that you're supposed to use? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So imagine that there is a whiteboard, you know, if you, if you write something on a whiteboard in a permanent marker, that's that's staying there. Okay, that's there now. That's yeah. now part of the whiteboard. Good luck. So if you wanted to write down, let's say, yeah, you want to write down a piece of information. If that piece of information then becomes out of date, your only option is to leave the first thing you wrote on the board and then write the new version below it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, maybe you cross out the first one, but you can still see that it's there. You can see the history. And then every time you change that piece of information, you just have to write it down again and again and again and just cross out the last one and cross out the last one. So it's like that whiteboard. You know, everything that's ever happened is on there. You can see what the current state of affairs is. That's the last thing in the list. But you can also see everything else in the list that's ever happened. And then basically, if you take that whiteboard and go stick it in a public square so everyone else can see it, that's an NFT. I think just technologically, I think conceptually, it makes sense. It makes more sense than it did, you know, <laughs> you know, th- 30 minutes ago, I will say. <laughs> I'm like, oh. <laughs> Unfortunately, there is so much more, you know, to this story, which we will get to with our other guests. But Mark, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. We covered a lot when we just spoke with Mark. And because of that, we should do a quick recap. So NFTs or non-fungible tokens are representations of ownership for things like artwork or houses or parcels of land or anything at a certain level. NFTs, as we're talking about them today, rely on blockchains, which are like ledgers that everyone can view and which are, because of the technology behind them, extremely difficult to alter. And because of that difficulty, what is recorded on the blockchain is then seen as true. It is immutable. For a specific group of people, that blockchain truth, that immutability, is what is helping drive such high prices for NFTs. How high? In March of this year, a digital artist who goes by the name Beeple sold the NFT of his artwork called Every Days, the first 5,000 days, for $69 million dollars. The sale makes Beeple one of the highest paid living artists today, and it represents a tremendous spike in his earlier success with NFTs. In 2020, he'd sold the NFT of another digital artwork called Crossroad for only $66,000. And that $66,000 looks like comparative chump change today when put against other NFT projects from separate artists. In 2017, the team at Larva Labs launched a project called CryptoPunks. Remember CryptoKitties that Mark mentioned? Well, that, but not entirely. CryptoPunks is a collection of 10,000 unique images and their accompanying NFTs. The images are extraordinarily basic. Small, 8-bit pixel art portraits of people, of zombies, of monkeys, all generated in the same style, all with varying features, like white hair or goggles or beards or ear piercings or all of them at the same time. Those crypto punks have generated a lot of money this year, and at least 10 individual crypto punks have sold for more than $2 million each. 
A similar project called Board Ape Yacht Club has also seen high sales this year. The Board Ape Yacht Club takes large inspiration from CryptoPunks. There are another 10,000 unique images and their accompanying NFTs. And the images are also of portraits, but without the pixel art style. And the portraits are of characters with varying features, such as laser shooting eyes, smoking pipes, rainbow colored skin, halos, crowns, sailor hats. The biggest difference, obviously, is that all the characters are apes, hence the name. Those NFT-backed images have sold between owners for upwards of $300,000 as of late. And if at this point you're going, huh? Why? I can't blame you. Because understanding that NFT sales are sales of ownership, sales of proof, of, of agreeing to an entry in a log, we... We just don't have many analogs to that in the real world. Because, yes, we have records, obviously. But we don't have an appetite for those records, at least not even close in the same way. So I have a car, right? I spent money on that car. That car came with a title, which proves it is mine. Obviously, that title is part of the car purchase. But that's expected. That's not appealing to me. And I would never just go buy a car's title and be happy with the piece of paper and without the utility of the car. I spoke with Mark about this a little bit after our interview, and the closest we could come to was star naming. Do you folks remember the star naming trend? You would call a company, you'd say, I'd like to name this star after my husband. And the company says, righto, we'll put that record in our logs and we'll send you a certificate that says, yep, that star right there, which predates all of human existence by likely billions of years, born from the same basic elements as us, but under a cosmic downpour of gravity, fused into a diamond that rivals a diamond's own lifespan into a light that can fuel a planet and all of that planet's growth, and as such has in its long life witnessed the birth and death of every human ever born, the passing and fading of every genetic predecessor ever discovered and undiscovered, and the wide-eyed wonder of every scared and expectant face, both licked and warmed by our earliest command of fire. That star is called Doug. Star naming to a lot of folks feels like a scam because, well, we know what stars are called. And even if we don't know, no, like even if we can't say, yes, that star is called Betelgeist and that one is Alpha Centauri and that, that, one's, uh, that one's the North Star, I, I don't know. We can at least suss out that nobody has ever rightfully called a star Doug. And to highlight the issue here, part of the problem with star naming is that, okay, say you've purchased a name for a star. That star is now named Doug to who? because it sure as hell won't be recognized as Doug by NASA. And it likely won't be recognized as Doug by me, or your neighbor, or your extended family, or <laughs> probably even your direct family. But what the blockchain seeks to potentially remedy is just that. It's that if enough people agree that you do own that artwork, then, well, you do. As we'll find, though, just because enough members of an exclusive community say something is true, and just because their statements are backed truthfully by a blockchain doesn't mean you won't meet opposition. In other words, expect a lot of folks saying that the star you just named is actually named Greg. 
To dig into this next layer of the NFT craze, I spoke with Lucas Matney, a writer for TechCrunch who has covered NFTs for a while now. We brought him onto the show to help us understand what are NFTs worth? For who are they worth that? And what is even being purchased to justify these prices? Lucas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Absolutely. We're stoked to have you here. And I wanted to jump right into it because we have quite a few questions here, just from those <laughs> high-popping valuations. I wanted to understand ownership first, right? Because it's something that we hear about a lot. Oh, you're not just buying, well, you're not buying the artwork, you're buying ownership of it. So just pretty plainly, when people purchase an NFT, what are they actually buying? As in, what ownership do they obtain? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great question. And it's a question a lot of people were grappling with early on. I mean, the simplest way to think of it is you're owning about the same thing you'd own if you purchased a share in a stock of a company. You're not owning any copyright of that image necessarily. You're not, you don't really have any rights to anything but that thing saying that you own that specific NFT. It's really just a digital receipt saying that this is yours. Others may screenshot it, others may download it, but in the grand scheme of things, in the blockchain history, you are the rightful owner. So in terms of actual physical ownership, or I guess physical digital ownership, there's not, not a lot that is coming to most people when they purchase one of these. You know, there's certain projects that may get a little bit more creative. They may kind of try to create, you know, methods to actually get you some of the copyright on that. But for the most part, you know, the original owner owns the copyright. In terms of stuff like derivatives, most of them are are pretty open to people kind of doing whatever they want with the image, but you know they don't actually have any legal ownership of what they buy when they order one of these things on OpenSea. Yeah, and OpenSea, right, is just for our listeners, one of the biggest like auction houses or, or marketplaces, right? Yes. Yeah. So they, they kind of went with the, the eBay for NFTs was their selling point. And, and, and that is really where most of the action happens. You know, billions of dollars of NFT sales are occurring every single month on OpenSea. A lot of the top projects, that's where they're being traded just because it's, you know, a very visible marketplace and, and trusted, but it's, you know, really exploded in terms of the business that's being done on it this year. Yeah. Something you said there, right? When, when you were talking about the ownership that, what you're paying for is, is you're getting receipt of something and that there is still the opportunity for someone else to like screenshot it. And that's a thing that's like absolutely happening right now, right? Like people are buying NFTs. They are saying they've purchased it on a platform like Twitter. And then there are other people replying to them with screenshots of the thing they've just purchased. Can you explain what's going on there? And, and because I think it's kind of fascinating and it's this whole idea of what's been called like right-click mentality? Help me understand it. Well, it's funny. And I think it's often the hardest thing to wrap one's mind around. And it's largely just kind of like a, a difference in how, you know, people with wealth view wealth versus people who do not have wealth view wealth. And I think the the idea of where the art market factors into all of that is kind of one of the harder, you know, to grasp things where, you know, when someone buys, you know, say a Basquiat or something for $75 million, you know, they're not buying that because they want to have it above their fireplace and, you know, have, you know, well, that could be partial reason, but they're not primarily buying it because, you know, they know it's worth $75 million and they want to have it above their fireplace and have parties and have people come and see, you know, how, what, what great arbiters of taste they are. Uh, for the most part, you know, they're buying that because 
in the fine art market, you know, artists who have paintings that sell for above a million dollars, those are pretty safe bets in terms of investments. And it really helps diversify the portfolios of people who are, you know, may have a lot of their wealth tied up in the stock markets or ETFs. Like when stuff is in art, there's a tendency for it to be a little bit more disconnected. Um, so if there's a stock market crash or something, you know, it's there's probably not going to be an associated crash in the prices of some of these, you know, Basquiat paintings or something, just for an example, just because people aren't necessarily going to unload all of these paintings because they probably, you know, they probably took a big hit to their net worth, but that's not necessarily where they're going to go liquidate all of their assets first. Um, so it's kind of a weird thing where it's like, you know, sure you're buying this JPEG and sure anybody can see it, but also it's, that's not really about owning the, image or it's you know not not about owning it as a piece of artwork the idea of ownership is more about it being an investment and something that you know is provably yours that's you know that's how nfts work um but it's more about it being kind of you know a, a share of a larger product so if you can think of cryptopunks as you know a startup that issued 10,000 shares but each of those shares is kind of valued differently because they have different attributes if you own a share of cryptopunks you know as the price of the token project goes up, so does your CryptoPunk. And if you just own a picture of it, you don't have a stake at the table at all. You're, you know, in fact, an observer who is kind of contributing to the larger idea and kind of brand awareness of CryptoPunks. So even, even the people who are <laughs> right-clicking and saving these images are in fact making, you know, in some grand scheme of things are making the people who actually own them richer because they are increasing the visibility of the product. So it's kind of, I mean, this, this like, you know, I really only started covering NFTs when they got popular, you know, maybe in like February or something, they were, they were like kind of lightly on people's radar. It was still like a month or two before the Beeple sale, but get uh, understanding these elements of it has been difficult for someone who, you know, I, I'm not, you know, going to Christie's auctions and buying paintings regularly <laughs> or at all. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a different way of thinking. So I can get why people are confused because it is confusing and it's, you know, it's just, but yeah, I think, I think fundamentally the big part of it is it's just, you know, people with wealth think about investments and assets a lot differently than people who, you know, maybe most of their earnings are tied up in their 401k or, you know, most, most of their net worth or it's in their home or something. Mainly, I think people are thinking about NFTs like they're thinking about home buying, where you're buying something, it's an investment, but it's functional. And NFTs could not be less functional. They're, the, you know, they're one of the least functional assets you can buy because they don't really own anything except, you know, a little hash on a block in the Ethereum network. It's very, it's very divorced from, you know, typical ideas of assets that accrue value over time. So yeah. long, long answer, but that's, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's how I'd explain it. Yeah. I'm glad that you like immediately brought it into like, well, you know, there's a, there's a difference between what wealthy people, how they view these and, and what non-wealthy people view. And I think that really like helps contextualize it because like you said, someone isn't buying like a Basquiat or a Picasso and so that they can, and they're not buying it at that price at, tens of millions of dollars for the sole purpose of showing it off in their home. There are so many other ways that something has value at that level. And I think it's interesting because every piece of artwork I've purchased is specifically to display in my home. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> like there it it is functional and i don't uh i haven't i haven't much like you i don't go to christie's auctions <laughs> not your scene i understand it's a, uh, <laughs> it's a stuffy environment right uh, it's that, that's what it is it's too stuffy for me <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a really good uh way to pivot into our next question here which is which is trying to understand why these became popular when they did like you said you started writing about these in february and and there's no better way to to kind of ask it like even if even if right this is considered an investment vehicle you know for the folks who are who are pouring money into it why did it become that so suddenly in in the past year in the past few months yeah so i mean you know cryptocurrencies in general are the industry terminology is it's there's something called like a FOMO on ramp where you know everyone is has a fear of missing out and once they see prices take off you know retail investors you know people who are just kind of you know average average joes not institutionals they start buying in because there's you know they they see they see you know some some altcoin pick up a thousand percent and all of a sudden they kind of associate with that altcoin that it's you know, it's something people are investing in first off, but it's also something that's making people rich. And so the NFT thing is interesting because people have been trying to make these happen for a long time. And so a lot of people heard about it for the first time this year, but there were a lot of people who were building these in, you know, relative silence since 2017, pretty much. And that's when CryptoPunks was was first created. But a lot of people were building these projects, including the people behind CryptoKitties, which is Dapper Labs. Um, and Late last year, they released a project called NBA Top Shot. And NBA Top Shot, it was, you know, the Dapper Labs had partnered officially with the NBA and the NBA Players Association. And they basically have these digital trading cards that were all, um, you know, finite on the blockchain associated to an individual NBA player and like a shot they did or a move. And you could buy these on the blockchain and mint them. And it was kind of, you know, it was a really interesting thing because it was really what, you know, the crypto industry has always longed for, which is a very mainstream embrace from a mainstream organization that thought, hey, there's some potential here. So that that came out, you know, late last year. It was, it's been, you know, it was, in, it was in beta. Come like probably January and February, I think people in kind of the wider tech industry outside of just like the strict crypto element of it discovered it and thought, you know, this is pretty cool. And so, you know, whereas it was probably making, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars in secondary or secondary transactions, you know, in November, December of last year, you know, by like by January and February, it was scaling into the millions by February and March, tens of millions, March, April, you know, it was getting up to, you know, a couple hundred millions of dollars flowing through this platform. And I really think, you know, I think there are a lot of ways to kind of dice it up but i think that top shot kind of triggered this kind of opening up of the nft market into a broader kind of consumer sphere and then all of a sudden you know investors like Andreessen horowitz and a couple of the other big vc and in startup investment firms started dumping money into these and i think it really took off from there and then as you mentioned earlier, the the kind of Christie's people sale was also a pretty big moment. And I think all of those things kind of compounding together just led to people seeing the word NFT for the first time, which is, you know, and, and having to ask themselves what it was. 
And I think that was like a moment that a lot of people in the crypto world who had been kind of playing around with these for years were just like desperately waiting for. That's when it happened. I guess maybe the question of why it happened is the more interesting one. And I guess in order to see that, you kind of have to look at some of the blockchain networks, primarily Ethereum. So Ethereum is you know, a very popular blockchain. It's the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap. And it functions a lot differently than Bitcoin in that a lot of the projects that are built on it are called smart contracts. And it's basically you know, web software that runs on the blockchain. But it was also just one of the first you know, crypto projects that really got a lot of developers on board and a lot of developers interested in what was being built on it. And a lot of investors were buying into it very early on with the idea that it would eventually be embraced by a broader developer audience, that a lot of big companies would get on board. And, you know, for the most part, early on, that didn't really happen. So, I mean, it took years for some of the first use cases to get, you know, a, a little popular. And even then, it's still, you know, it was very technical, nothing consumer facing whatsoever. So when NFTs came around, a lot of people who had already built up a lot of wealth in the Ethereum ecosystem with the Ethereum token were really quick to say, you know, in terms of the broader scheme of things that we should be pumping money into, something that's the first real consumer hit of this network is probably the best call. You know, I'm not saying it was like some like meeting where everyone got around and, and <laughs> voted on it by any means, but in terms of, you know, if you're someone who has you know, $500 million worth of Ethereum, and it's worth, you know, a few hundred dollars a token, what's the quickest way to get it so that you have, you know, tokens that are worth four or $5,000, probably to make it accessible to a big consumer audience. So as a result, you know, people are buying Beeple's for $69 million, but it's, you know, they're not buying it because that hooked on the idea of Beeple as an artist, they're buying it because it's kind of a proving ground for the blockchain. And if you know someone sees a New York Times headline where a Beeple sold for $69 million, they're like, okay, this is not only something that has a lot of value that exists in the world, but it's also something that like, I know what it is now. Like I know what an NFT is. I'm gonna go Google and watch a YouTube video on what Ethereum is. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a giant advertisement for the network itself. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of different roads you could go down there, but I think that's kind of a big thing is that a lot of people who are putting money into NFTs right now are people who fundamentally have a lot of their assets tied up in these blockchain networks and want to see the applicability of, I guess, like the, the reach of the networks and the applications that are on it grow so that the underlying tokens become worth more. That's a little bit of it. That's such a good history. Like, that's a fantastic history. Like, it's it's this uh, idea of tracing that, right, there were and are a ton of folks who are cryptocurrency advocates and have been for years, a very long amount of time. And it is worth a lot to them, conceptually and literally, right? But it can be worth more if they convince more people that it is worth more. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I guess like a easy way to do this is like here's a consumer application. Here's a consumer application for it in a way that hadn't materialized for a really long time. I mean, I remember the the first few years of cryptocurrency advocacy and there was a lot of talk about okay, at a, at a certain point we'll get somewhere where you can use Bitcoin at your grocery store. 
And I think there's like a couple of shops, you know, in the world. <laughs> right. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's not a, it's not a currency that really makes sense for that in some ways. Right. And I think, I, but they were like, it's a currency. What use is it if we can't figure out how to get people to spend it somehow? <laughs> uh, but that's not a use case of it right now for Bitcoin, especially, exactly. which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so it sounds like, you know, everyone was wise enough to see like, okay, this isn't happening. This isn't really what it is. You know, what could it be? And that mixture of the NBA's top shot and also just folks having having money tied up in cryptocurrency and and wanting to use it. Yeah. And I guess just, you know, one more thing on that note, I wrote a post for TechCrunch, I have a, I have a newsletter, um, and I wrote something about kind of, you know, why do NFT prices for these big projects only go up, essentially? And, you know, I know they only go up in quotation marks, but, <laughs> you know, I was, I was kind of really thinking about it. And it's, and it's interesting because, you know, a big part of these projects is basically, you know, in how the tax system works. And a big part of how money flows through all of these networks is how taxes work. Um, so people who have you know millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars tied up in cryptocurrencies spend an awful lot of time thinking about when they realize an asset. So you know, whereas we might think like, oh, you know, this people sale, this artist cashed out on nothing because they you know got sixty nine million real dollars for this NFT they make. I, people people in the crypto community don't think of it that way. It really, you know, this isn't funny money to them. This is where all of their assets are tied up. So if you have, you know, if you have all this money and you're a long-term believer in Ethereum or Bitcoin, you want to keep it in that. You don't want to put it into dollars, have a taxable event where you have to, you know, the IRS is, can kind of, you know, has a little bit more visibility into when someone cashes out $100 million of a cryptocurrency. You want to minimize those events. So you want to keep it all in there. But at the same time, you know, you can't spend Bitcoin at the grocery. So they have all these different things that have kind of been created for, you know, all this crypto wealth. So like people can basically borrow USD. They can showcase how much of a cryptocurrency they own, and then they can kind of borrow money on that. So it's not a taxable event. And that's kind of, you know, a little bit how NFTs came. They're still keeping the money in Ethereum because all of these projects are on Ethereum. This is a tax advice because I know that there are some people who would say once it becomes an NFT, that's a taxable event in and of itself. But, you know, others may not think that. So they buy NFTs and they keep it in Ethereum, but it's also a little bit more diversified because they're smaller projects. You know, they're not... You know, you can't like see a running counter of what every individual NFT is worth because you know, they're non-fungible. So they're not the same as other ones. You know, this is a very, a little bit of a confusing road to go down. Uh, but I guess, you know, you, you buy, you buy some of these NFTs and no one really, you know, you can, you can hold on to it for a long time. So you can, you know, the market can have a downturn that affects the price of tokens and you can see that on the exchanges. But if you're holding on to an NFT, you know, it only becomes real when you sell it. And so, you know, there's not an active counter saying, you know, now a CryptoPunk is worth 15. They have floor prices, which are what the cheapest CryptoPunks have sold for at a given time, you know, and that's kind of the same across NFTs. But it's, you know, if, if you have patience, maybe you don't realize any losses. So it's, it's <laughs> there are a lot of different confusing directions in terms of, you know, where this money goes and, you know, what these things are worth. But it all kind of exists within this broader idea that, you know, there's a lot of money that's basically stuck in, you know, Ethereum or stuck in some of these blockchains where the people who have it don't want to move it out. 
they're going to keep moving it around internally. And, you know, maybe some retail investors will put their money into the system and make it larger, or maybe they'll take it out. But there's a certain amount of money that's just kind of going to keep in there and keep flowing around. I want to break here a little bit from our interview and discuss just how complex the NFT landscape is from what we've just heard. There are, like Lucas said, disagreements about taxation on NFTs, and there are what sound like loans that are secured on the implied value of crypto holdings, which themselves could be tied up in many different NFTs. And at this point, it sounds like two worlds are crashing together. And you could call it old money and new money, and I don't mean that in a Great Gatsby sense, though that likely does apply. I mean that in a literal, older money regulations and laws, meeting literal new money, as in this currency is new. It is made up. We are telling ourselves what it is worth. And then we are using that consensus-driven worth to prop up the value of another digital good. And why do we do this? And I don't mean to steer head first into this digital existentialism, but in my relatively short time on Earth, I have seen the proliferation of the internet, and I have seen us attempt to create a new world on that internet, a little second universe of our own. And then I have seen us use the internet to host the creation of another universe inside of it, that thing we're now calling the metaverse. And really, how long until someone builds another universe within the metaverse? How long and why? It's universes all the way down, and us continuing to pretend that this time we'll get it right. But the big flaw here is that we're still making and governing all of them. And to bring it back into why that matters, when one universe moves faster than the rules of the one on top of it, people get hurt. On September 22nd, an NFT project called Evolved Apes launched. You can fill in some of the blanks for yourself at this point here. Yes, there are 10,000 unique images. Yes, they were all illustrated in the same style with many variations. And yes, they were all apes again. But before it launched, the Evolved Apes project cranked up that hype lever. According to its official website, there were six alleged phases of future development. There'd be chances for early investors in the project to work directly with the project's artist to design their own one-of-a-kind ape. There'd be a clothing and accessories line. There'd be game-like additions, such as a so-called serum that would evolve the apes. And there'd be an online fighting game where NFT owners could pit their apes against one another and then bet on the outcome. These development phases needed money and investors were willing to give. By the time the project launched, investors had put in about $2.7 million in Ethereum. But a little more than one week after the launch, something went wrong. The creator of the Evolved Apes project, who only identified themselves by their Twitter handle, Evil Ape, some foreshadowing there, had planned a heist. Reportedly on October 1st, Evil Ape scrubbed their Twitter account, shut down the Evolved Apes website, siphoned out 798 Ether, which is actually worth more than $3 million today, and then disappeared into cyberspace. This kind of scam is sometimes referred to as a rug pull. A new project makes 
big promises, whips early investors into a frenzy, persuades people to give money before the launch, and then dematerializes. What's most interesting about Evolved Apes, though, is that the project actually launched. There are 10,000 Evolved Ape NFTs that you can buy today on OpenSea. They aren't worth anything near the NFTs from projects like CryptoPunks, sure, but they they do exist. And that's better than what happened to other investors of a separate project called Iconics. In September, a new NFT project promised to sell NFTs of 8,000 unique digital renderings of character busts. So not apes, not punks, but humanoid figures. A pre-sale for the project brought in $138,000 from interested buyers, and when the project actually launched, those buyers did not receive ownership of the digital character busts, but instead just a handful of emojis. The entire project was fake from the very start, and interestingly, the artwork that was used to promote the project was also stolen. It belonged to a younger college student who did not learn about the NFT project until after the scam was finished. We should be clear here. These stories are not the norm, but for these investors, their money is pretty much gone. And as Lucas will explain, Losing money in the NFT landscape is a real possibility, and not just through rug pull scams. For anyone at home who heard about that cartoon rock selling at first for $4,800 and then for $1.3 million soon after that, and who thought, yeah, I could do that. Or for anyone at home who has considered really learning the NFT landscape to make quick 24-hour profits repeatedly. People who are interested in day trading NFTs, you know, if you're willing to spend all your time in the Discord servers of these NFT projects and on crypto Twitter, you can probably make money. But you're gonna, you know, you're operating, you're operating in a sphere that's, you know, very it's uncharted waters. Like, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing for all these projects is back in 2017, there were these initial coin offerings for a lot of these crypto projects where you know they they'd release a lot of tokens in a drop and like people would sign on and the SEC you know Securities and Exchange Commission would maybe a few months later come knocking on their door and be like you know what you're doing is clearly a security you're telling these people they're owning a slice of something and it's going to make them wealthy down the line that's clearly illegal you can't do that without registering your token and i think we're kind of getting to a point with nfts where some of them are getting like a little too sophisticated for their own good like buying a piece of art you know, on the blockchain that, you know, people assume is going to go up. It, it, it's different than, you know, Beeple himself telling people, buy my art, it only goes up or something. No one's yeah. dumb enough to say that. <laughs> uh, but it, it, for some of these crypto projects, the lines are blurring. And these are, you know, they're not securities. You have no investor protections from the federal government. It's, you know, it's a whole different game. And as a result, a lot of people get burned on this stuff and it's very intoxicating. And I can say, even as someone who isn't buying any of them, it is addicting to look at these networks and track them on a daily basis. You know, there, there are certain aspects of like when I've been doing this that I've kind of been looking into this stuff and it's just like, like oh man, CryptoPunks going for 100 ETH right now. And I'm, you're just like, you're like, that's crazy. And you're like, what does that mean? I don't know, but it's crazy still. Uh, it's like, you know, really, <laughs> it's a really weird world and it's so easy to get lost in it. And it's also like, it's particularly kind of, a weird time because I feel like the trust that 
consumer investors have in influencers and like fintech influencers is kind of like at an all-time high right now. And crypto is literally like the best thing for them to to shill because hey, it's not a security like a lot of the like investor protections that exist for things like, you know, if you're pumping a stock that's trading on, you know, a public market, those don't exist. So it's just like, you know, these people can can talk about a token or they can talk about an NFT project and people will take it really seriously because they trust, you know, X influencer persona. But, you know, it's just, it's such a weird, I, I don't know. It's such a dangerous place to be playing unless you're in it for the long haul, I think. We're nearing the end of our episode. And what better topic to close on than, as Lucas said, the long haul. To understand the future of NFTs, I wanted to look at two spheres of influence, the art world and everything beyond the art world. And to do that, I spoke with a man named Mike Mizells, who is an art historian by training and a current innovation researcher at Pilot44 and an affiliate at the Meta Lab at Harvard University. Mike speaks in large terms. Uh, less than a minute into our interview, he told me that though art is considered universal, Art as a construct is a fairly specific sort of Western idea that begins in many ways in the Renaissance and then in many ways it sort of morphs into the kind of modern version that we think of it with an art market in the 19th century. And an analogy I used to uh, share with my students back when I was a full-time art history professor is that stories may be universal, but novels are culturally specific and art functions something much closer to a novel than it does to a story. Mike spoke to me about Art before art, as we understand it today, which means paintings before canvas, paintings as an act before the Renaissance, paintings affixed to walls and castles and churches, immovable, and people painting directly onto statues. He spoke of the birth of the concept of the named artist, the hero artist, Michelangelo Raphael, what he jokingly called Ninja Turtle art, uh, Michelangelo Raphael, Donatello, Leonardo, get it? And how fast forwarding into the 20th century, Jackson Pollock has been historicized as perhaps the last hero artist, as a man who literally spilled his creativity on the canvas. But what is interesting about Pollock, I learned, is that he was poor for much of his life, and so were his contemporaries at the time. But against this backdrop, an art dealer named Leo Castelli emerges, and he develops a different system that gets his chosen artists to be paid well. The system is a new model of art business, and it invites people to purchase art from new American artists while also witnessing that art's value rise. Castelli elbows his artists into the limelight, paying academics to write positively about his own artist's work as a way to legitimize them. And once legitimized in the public eye, Castelli could also then offer his artist's work to museums, thus almost cutting to the front of the line of history making. Because, well, what else is history if not what our esteemed institutions agreed to preserve? And look, it's many things, okay, I get that, but let's not pull on that thread right now. Castelli's stable of artists is also huge, by the way, as in folks whose names you might know, even if you don't know art. Uh, Andy Warhol, Jasper Johns, Roy Lichtenstein, Cy Twombly, Frank Stella, Robert Rauschenberg, the list goes on, and if that list bears no familiarity, 
for folks trying to understand Leo Castelli in the 1960s, just imagine an unholy cross between the dominance of like Alabama college football, you know, New York Yankees and baseball during their strongest period, the New England Patriots in their strongest period, and it probably still wouldn't be dominant enough, right? If that sports analogy does nothing for you, uh, just imagine that the artists are the Avengers and Leo Castelli is Nick Fury, which immediately after saying, I realize could also mean nothing for some of our listeners. So imagine a bunch of people just crushing it at something. Importantly, why all of this matters is that it's around this time that we reach our clearest comparison to NFTs. In 1961, Andy Warhol starts a new project in which he paints 32 Campbell's soup cans. 32 canvases, each measuring 20 inches by 16 inches, and each depicting a different, unique variety of Campbell's soup. Nearly identical, and all produced through a screen printing process. Upon debut, the canvases garner meager sales. Only six people purchased individual pieces for $100 each, but the art dealer who curated the show actually buys those six canvases back as he wanted to keep the 32 pieces together as a set. What's happening in the art world with NFTs isn't entirely new. As we saw with Warhol, we've seen iterative, repetitive art making. We've seen prices rise in real time, and we've seen a crop of new wealth access art at those prices while subsequently bumping those prices up. What does this mean for the future? Near term, according to Mike, is that we'll have some companies pouring a lot of money into the NFT space. And sure, we already see it. But middle term and further out is harder to predict. We're going to have to just kind of wait and see until one NFT project deems itself worthy enough to be preserved. Basically, what NFT project will warrant attention from classic preservationists of culture, from Museums, obviously. And Mike's idea here isn't that we should worry too much about what to preserve today. Let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's not bother with the question of the NFT museum. Instead, let's just trust that today's museums and other knowledge creators, as Mike called them, will race to preserve and highlight the first truly transformative work that incorporates NFTs. And that may come from the first NFT project that can address enormous social and policy issues. And when we say enormous, we mean really enormous. As in, according to Mike, let's get out of the logjam of climate change in action enormous. And thus, we move into NFT impacts beyond art. And we introduce the idea of the DAO or the DAO, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. A decentralized autonomous organization is a lot of syllables to basically mean direct, flat democracy. No leaders, no executives, no boards or committees, just a group of people with no hierarchy making decisions on how to accomplish a goal. It is governance. DAOs have been set up for some NFT projects because those projects actually involve many people. Artists, developers, investors, and those projects also bring in a revenue stream where there was none before. A DAO for an NFT project can then, hypothetically, decide how that money is used. It can decide if the money should be used to buy back some NFTs, much like Warhol's dealer did on his own with the 32 soup cans. It can decide whether another round of NFTs is produced and released. It can decide what the next development phases are for the NFT project. A DAO is just a group of people making decisions about things that directly affect them. 
or as I put it to Mike, so it's like a homeowners association, but not like awful. <laughs> That's the least sexy and most compelling analogy I've ever heard. <laughs> and I wanted to get into the Dow, right? Because there was something you said a while ago about one day being able to unblock like climate change legislation. Help me understand how we get from NFTs as we understand them today to that. I don't want to go down a huge rabbit hole of rank voting and things like this, <laughs> but I think we can understand that, I'm trying to think of how I even want to characterize this. So one goes back and reads the documents of you know, the, the founders of the United States of America, you know, founding team, and the idea of the Senate, even, this is a great example, you know, the six-year terms mm-hmm. was designed to produce gridlock. Because the idea was a fear of, you know, a tyrant president or a Mm -hmm. populist demagogue Mm -hmm. and a on purpose slow down mechanism was created to temper fast motion so that the, 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 the cruise ship would be hard to change directions on purpose. Right. Hundreds of years later. What was designed as a feature and may still be acting as a feature appears in many respects and to many people to be a bug, right? So how can one imagine new processes and technologies that enable those processes that would provide some of the functionality of preventing a tyranny of the minority or even a tyranny of the majority, and enable organizations to make decisions and look out for themselves going forward in the future, ideally without an appointed king, right? So one example of how this kind of a thing unfolds is different ways of imagining voting, right? So, you know, going back to the early constitution, who do you want to vote for as president? Oh, wait, maybe the idea of direct democracy is tyranny prone. And we need to create something like the Electoral College that bundles votes to make sure that, you know, folks from states with fewer populations have different kinds of proportional representation. And the thing is created with a system of checks and balances, right? So there are versions of this that one could imagine enacting as democratic reform that rather than, oh, I'm going to vote for one person as president or one person, you know, as you know, mayor of my town, I might vote for three people in order and divvy up my vote proportionally across those three candidates. And it turns out that people, I'm trying to think of how I even want to want to say this, rank voting mathematically is more likely to produce more happiness across the board with the voted on outcome than single one shot vote right yeah. because if i let's say as, especially as the 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 possibility space gets bigger right because let's say there's seven options mm-hmm. i can vote for my favorite but let's say there's one or two of them i absolutely hate i have mm-hmm. no way of of expressing that preference right or let's say i'm indifferent to three or four of them i have yeah. one or two i would be perfectly fine with one or two being voted i have no way of expressing that preference right and then you multiply that by a thousand people who might sit in a community all of a sudden you are you become blind to a whole bunch of information so allowing people to vote by rank allows a broader expression of what it is people actually want to have happen there with the issue at hand 
DAOs are like so many degrees more complex than something like rank voting versus single shot voting. But you're starting to see the idea of how new kinds of technologies that could enable rank voting happening all the time, like money streaming, but for you know opinions rather than for cash flows, could create organizations that are better able to manage decision-making at a micro scale. And then some number of decades into the future, one imagines somebody saying, wait a minute, we're governing our DAOs and our NFTs just fine, and our goddamn country's falling apart. We need fundamental change in how voting happens because, you know, multiply the chaos you're seeing today five decades into the future with telescoping returns, people might be ready for a break. They might be ready to try something different with a capital D. And some of the ideas that'll get tried will have been rehearsed in the Web 3.0 world. I like all these things, right? I enjoy them. <laughs> like, And, and the, the, I say it that way because, right, there's a lot of things we like that don't come to fruition. And I say it that way because I see a couple of threats to the NFT space. And I was mentioning them at the top of the show. And there's a couple of things, right, where people are losing money. And that's that's all it really takes, I think, for some folks to be like, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to touch that if I lose money. Right. We corresponded a little bit about this before the show began. And I think it's funny because art in many ways, despite what everybody else will tell you about this, is a terrible investment. If you <laughs> cherry pick it, sure, you can get it to beat the S&P 500. But the thing is, is the art market is horrendously shot through with unmitigated conflicts of interest. And that whenever somebody says, oh, we need to clean this up, or we need to, you know, democratize this, throw sunshine on it, what you're, it's cutting off the limb of the tree you're sitting on. Right. So I don't want to share any names, but just imagine absolute top of the top blue chip museum, absolute top of the top blue chip artist stories I've heard firsthand. Donors will give uh, buy two paintings, call it for, you know, a million bucks each. Keep one of them, donate the other one to a museum, take the tax write off with the insistence. Oh, you know, this is I want to give it anonymously, but I want it displayed right at the front. (laughs) Let that happen for a year or two turn around and sell the other piece because there's one just like it right at the front. Piece realizes double its volume. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of thing is the art market. And anybody that's betting on a derivative of that is betting on a derivative of of an inside baseball that they have no ticket into the locker room, right? So all these, you know, tokenize the, the existing blue chip painting network I, every time I see one of them, because I get them all the time on my social media, I mark them all as spam and phishing because that's truthfully what I think all of them are. Okay, fine. But the idea that art, that I'm trying to think of how to say this, that risk or that bad actors will pull people away from the sanctity of art or of investing in the I almost think the opposite is true. I think the idea of adventure, getting to rub shoulders with the pirates of the world. I think that's why people get interested in art in the first place, right? Because if you're looking to make a return, like invest in real estate, right? (laughs) You know, there are fewer pirates, right? And yet we're not here talking about real estate in the central land because it just, it doesn't sound very sexy, right? There's like a lot of companies that are doing it. Maybe it'll turn out to be sexy to Gen Z, Gen Alpha, Gen Beta. I have a nine-month-old daughter. What her version of this that she's going to encounter when she grows up is like hard for me to, to really wrap my head around. Okay, fine. But I think, you know, and this to go back to the, the conversation that we were having over email, 
I have a belief it would be possible probably to prove with or to at least, you know, corroborate with some more extended research, but that it's interesting to see how the market for blue chip paintings, right, you know, call it, you know, old masters, modern masters, in some ways really begins in the 1950s which is very tied into the popularization of the art heist film, right? We think about like To Catch a Thief and Cary Grant. And all of a sudden there's this like, oh, they can be sort of stolen by a good guy, Robin Hood. Oh, they're valuable, right? How valuable are they, right? Oh, we could buy a ticket and see, you know, the kind of value of them kind of running through the good guy, bad guy storyline, I think is is a cultural piece of the broad interest in exactly how valuable the Van Gogh is that's stolen, right? So I, you know, obviously think that a whole bunch of NFT hacks, NFT wallets, right? That's not going to be like good for the short-term stability of the space. But again, Folks who are getting involved in crypto thrive on volatility in general. It certainly will make things more volatile. And I am not endorsing somebody to do this, but I'm saying that if I had invested in a big art NFT platform and I wanted the most free publicity with a certain kind of a risk, I would find a way to organize a heist and I would give them away to poor people. Right. Imagine somebody stole a bunch of bored apes and gave them to a bunch of like, you know, underprivileged humans somewhere, created a DAO to just give them away at random or to resell them on the open market and then give the money to create Internet access in third world countries. Right. That would attract so much attention and so much rhetoric. And all of the rhetoric, all the headlines you're all going to see is $30 million painting stolen. $30 million painting, $30 million NFT, and then the world will actually have advertised itself and improved itself and raised its public awareness through the idiom of the art heist. So what I'm hearing... Not recommending. (laughs) You you beat me to it. I was going to be like, so what I'm hearing is when I am caught for stealing nfts i can simply say please call mike mizels he he recommended this to me he is my counsel let's all take it up with him (laughs) the most historically important 20th century artist for art historians an artist named marcel duchamp who was famously arrested for stealing the mona lisa he didn't actually do it but he the mona lisa was stolen and he was widely suspected of it right so there is a way in which the objectification and we'll call it the diffusement, like, you know, leaves under the wind of what the old tradition was to clear the way for the new, that rhetoric is just baked into those sort of modernist avant-garde. And there will be versions of this that unfold in the in the 21st century, right? Because again, if you want to just make money and be boring, create financial derivatives and invest in real estate. If you want to have some adventure with a curl on your lip, art is a great way to do it. But adventure comes with all kinds of piracy, the, the, the noble and the ignoble, and that's part of the deal. Mike was very clear after the interview ended, he is not endorsing piracy. That's our show. We'd like to offer a huge thank you to all of our guests who made this enormous episode possible. And we'd like to, of course, extend a thank you to you, all of our listeners. 
have a happy end of year. We hope 2021 was somewhat joyful for you, and we'll talk to you again as always in two weeks when a few of us here at Malwarebytes talk about what upset us the most about cybersecurity in 2021 and what lessons we learned. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.